will you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 13? Luke chapter 13. In verse number 22, Luke tells us, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that it is to read your holy word today. Lord, we have the honor to read and to listen to the words of Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. I pray, Lord, that today you would open our eyes, open our ears, that we may see and hear, believe the truth that Jesus is revealing to us through your word. Father, today, may your spirit do his work among us. May we see that the only way to find you, the only means of entrance to the kingdom of God is through Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. As sinful human beings, I think we all tend toward a sense of entitlement. That, that we are somehow owed certain things or that we deserve certain things. You can see that for sure in young children, right? They, they believe that they, they deserve things, that they're owed things. And so you can be walking through a store with your children and they think that every toy on the shelf is owed to them, Right. I want that. I want that. I need this. I need that. I want this cereal. I want this food. I want that toy. 
there is a sense of entitlement that we're owed certain things. But that doesn't go away in childhood. We have, even as adults, I think a, this sense sometimes, this kind of trend towards we, we believe that we deserve certain things. Just look around in our country at when a tragedy or a disaster happens. Uh, even recently, such as with the, the winter storms, the power outages in, in Texas. People come in to help, right? Sometimes the government will give aid. Other, other people, other organizations, nonprofit organizations will come in to help and supply aid. But oftentimes, instead of receiving that with a spirit of gratitude or of thanksgiving, it becomes, I need more. Or if they get something, where's mine? It becomes a sense of entitlement. We have whole government programs that we've established in our country that are called entitlements, that people believe these belong to us. We are owed these things. Well, it's one thing to have a sense of entitlement when it comes to a toy on the shelf on a store or to have a sense of entitlement to a government check or handout. But it's quite another thing to believe that you're entitled to a ticket to heaven, that you're entitled to a seat at the kingdom table in the kingdom of God. Seems that in Jesus' day, there were some who did have that sense of entitlement when it came to entrance into God's kingdom. For some, it might be good deeds. They believe that they're entitled to eternity in paradise because they've earned it and they've lived a good life. And that sense of entitlement can still go on today, can't it? People believe that they're entitled to heaven, they're entitled to eternity because they've lived a good life. For them, heaven is their retirement program after a long life's work of good deeds. Some believe they're entitled to a home in heaven because of their family. They believe that they will be granted access to heaven because their family is a Christian family and they're the product of a long line of godly Christian people. Some believe they're entitled to a home in heaven just because God loves everyone, right? And it wouldn't be fair for God to condemn anyone. And so some people have a sense of entitlement to heaven because they believe everyone does. Everyone's going to heaven. God wouldn't send anyone to hell, would he? So there are different reasons for believing that you're entitled to a home in heaven. As Jesus lived and ministered in the towns and cities of Israel, he encountered that same sentiment. That people believed they were entitled to the kingdom of God. Jesus encountered people who thought they were entitled to the kingdom of God simply because of who they were, their identity. For many in Israel, it was simply a matter of tracing the family tree. Are you a descendant of Abraham? Then you're good to go. Probably leading that sentiment in Israel were the Pharisees. They reasoned that they were children of Abraham and children of the covenant and were therefore assured of eternal life. But on top of that, they also worked hard. They were righteous. They were pious. People looked to the Pharisees as the pious ones in society because they were viewed as the righteous ones, the keepers of the law. But here's the thing. It's easy to keep the rules when you're the ones making up the rules of the game. 
the Pharisees made up the rules and the regulations, and then they kept those rules and regulations. And so people viewed them as being righteous and godly and pious. And because of that, because of their lineage back to Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham, and because of their good deeds, the Pharisees thought that they were in. That they were assured, guaranteed a seat at the kingdom table. But Jesus had some news for them. For the past couple of chapters in Luke, Jesus has been calling for repentance and faith from the Jewish people. In fact, he's used the symbol of a fig tree in a parable to represent the nation of Israel. According to his teaching, if that fig tree did not produce fruit, then it would be cut down. What's the fruit? The fruit is faith. The fruit is repentance. Jesus is teaching the people of his day. It doesn't matter if you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. It doesn't matter if you're part of the, the root of Abraham, of, of, of Isaac and Jacob, trace your lineage back to David. It doesn't matter if you are not producing the fruit of righteousness and faith and repentance. And so from Christ, it does not matter if you're a physical descendant of Abraham or not. It only matters if you're a spiritual descendant. And the proof of being a spiritual descendant of Abraham is faith. Genesis 15, 6 reveals the faith that saves. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's quoted several times in the New Testament as giving evidence for the doctrine of justification, that we are justified by grace, not through works, but through faith. Abram believed God. He had faith in God, and that was credited to him, accounted to him as righteousness. He was justified in God's sight because of faith, not because of good works. And so the true mark of being a spiritual descendant of Abraham is if you have faith. And there are fruits of repentance. But these people did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. They were missing the signs of the kingdom, weren't they? The king was present. The king was there. It was a turning point in God's program. It was a unique time in the history of Israel and the world, but they were missing it. And so the last couple of chapters in Luke, we have had a, a kind of a focus on the nation of Israel and its response to her Messiah. Jesus has been warning the nation about the consequences of rejecting Christ. If they do not produce any fruit of repentance or faith, then it will be cut down. And the time is running out. And so because of that focus on uh, Israel and the Jewish people, we should not be surprised here in this passage then that the city of Jerusalem comes back into focus. If you remember back in Luke 9.51, Luke gave us this kind of marker, kind of a turning point in the gospel of Luke where it says that Jesus from that point on was setting his eyes, his face toward Jerusalem, toward the goal that God had sent him to accomplish and here in Luke 13, 22, we have another reminder that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. It's been a slow journey. He's been stopping in villages and towns along the way, 
to teach and to heal, but his destination and his mission are clear. And so Jesus went through the towns and the villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And along the way, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Apparently someone was getting the point. They were listening to what Jesus was saying and they appear to be getting the message. The popular opinion of the day was that if you were a native Israelite and you could trace your ancestry back to Abraham and the covenant, then you were saved. You were good to go. In the opinion of most, salvation and the blessing of God was a matter of nationality. But Jesus has been directly contradicting that notion by calling for personal faith and personal repentance, calling for the fruits of repentance. And so someone seems to have been getting the point and so asked the question, so does that mean, Lord, then, that only a few people are going to be saved? Thank you for asking. What follows is Jesus' response to this man. And his reply is a warning. And what Jesus' reply shows is that salvation and the blessing of God are not automatic. Salvation and the blessing of God is not something that we are entitled to. It's not automatic. There are no entitlements when it comes to salvation. It is not a matter of entitlement because of national heritage. Rather, it is by grace and response to the word of God. Contrary to public opinion, there will be many in Israel that will find themselves on the outside looking in. Because it's not a matter of national belonging, it's a matter of spiritual response. And so Jesus says to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Just right there on the surface of it reveals, Jesus is saying, not everyone is in, right? Not everyone's in. Many will try to enter through that door, but will not be able to. Jesus uses the symbolism of a gate or a door throughout this entire passage. And Jesus teaches us several things through this imagery of the door. And the first one is there's only one. There's only one door. That has been the thrust of Jesus' challenges to the people in the last several episodes. The judgment is coming. You must respond to my message. If you do not recognize the significance of this time, then the fig tree will be cut down. You see, there are not many gates. There are not many doors. There are not several entrances into the kingdom. There are not a variety of ways into heaven. There is one. Jesus identifies a specific gate, the narrow one. How narrow is it? It's the width of one man, and his name is Jesus. That's how wide the door is. There is one door. Strive to enter at that gate, he says. Now, when he says strive or make every effort, he's not saying that it's works that get you salvation or earn you God's blessings. 
Rather, Jesus is encouraging that diligence be used to listen to the words of Christ and respond to Jesus' message. In other words, by using this word, strive or make every effort, he's really calling to the surface the seriousness of this. This is how important this is that you find this door because there's only one. There's a specific door, one, and it is narrow. This completely goes against the grain of our culture, doesn't it? I mean, completely against the grain. I mean, this is like taking sandpaper and rubbing the wrong way because our whole culture is programmed to think everyone gets in. And there are many doors, right? And we kind of live in a postmodern cafeteria approach to religion and philosophy. Take some of this, a little bit of that. Really, we have not five or 10 or 20 religions. We have 7 billion religions in our world. That's the way postmodernism is. Everyone has their own way. And so you want to take a little bit of Islam, take a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of the words of Jesus, a little bit of Hinduism, some meditation, mix that all together, you've got your own spirituality. And people will say, there's, there's many ways to heaven. There's many gates. Jesus says, no, there's one. There's one narrow gate. People think that Christians are exclusive and intolerant. We're just following Jesus. Here's the thing. We're not excluding anyone who wants to come through the door, right? It doesn't matter what race you're from. It doesn't matter where you're from in this world, but there's still only one door. We're being no more exclusive than Jesus himself was. Jesus is the one who said there was one door. And he said, it's not wide, it's narrow. He said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse nine, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus is the door. There's one and he is it. Jesus is that door and it's narrow because he's the only way. If you reject him, there is no other way in. There's not another gate somewhere else. You can't climb over the wall. He is the entrance. And because he is the entrance, he controls the entrance, doesn't he? He controls the door. Jesus is the Lord of the door of who gets in and who gets out. And also, how long, and here's the important thing from the passage, how long the door is open. Because the time is drawing short. He says in verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evil doers. That parable, that story, communicates the idea that there is a time when the door will close. Jesus controls that time. Jesus controls the door. And once the door is closed, there is no more opportunity. This is contradictory to those who think there is a post-mortem opportunity to accept Christ and be saved. That is an after-death 
opportunity to accept Christ and be saved. The Bible teaches no such thing. It is during this life that there must be a response to Christ and his teachings, a response of faith and repentance. And Jesus says, the door, how narrow is it? Well, it's the width of one man, it's Jesus, and on top of that, the door is closing. You've seen movies, right? Action movies where they're in danger, they're in peril, and this gate is closing or this wall is coming down, and you've got to run with all effort, and you see people slide under the door, right? That's almost kind of the image Jesus is giving. There's one door, it's narrow, and it's closing. This is serious. Sometimes people think that they have all the time in the world to make a decision for Christ. That could not be more mistaken. They think that the door will remain open indefinitely. Again, they're mistaken. There will come a time when the door will be shut and there will be no more opportunities. That door closing may come in a variety of ways, right? That door closing on someone could be their own death. But also in scripture, that door closing could be the return of Christ and the judgment could happen at any moment. For anyone, that door could close today. God holds the appointment book for your life and he has written in pen, not pencil, the day you will die. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, what? The judgment. If you die without Christ, the door is closed and there is no more opening it. Some people think they can come to Christ whenever they're ready at their convenience. What they fail to realize is that it is only by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit of God that anyone comes to faith in Christ. He is the one who lifts the blinders off of the eyes. He is the one who opens the ears. He is the one who illumines the mind. You don't come to Christ whenever you please. You come to Christ when the Holy Spirit draws you by grace. There's only one door. Christ controls the door. And if you find yourself on the outside looking in, then there is judgment outside the door. There is judgment outside the door. Jesus says there'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Just stop and think about that for a moment. Think about how shocking of a statement that is that Jesus is making to the people that are listening to him. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to people who know the Bible better than anyone in this room. He's talking to people who've spent their whole lives living by a set of rules of righteousness, believing that they are God's children, that they are God's servants, that they are God's holy ones. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're going to be on the outside looking in. He says, there are going to be many who are on the outside. They're going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you're going to be looking from the outside, looking in and seeing Abraham there and Isaac there, and Jacob there, and many of the prophets, all the, the true prophets of God, sitting there at the banquet table, but you're not going to be there. In fact, you're going to be thrown out 
Going back to the previous verses, the people said, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we know you? Didn't you do all these miracles in our streets? And Jesus says, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. It's like Matthew said in Matthew chapter 7, where he records the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, there are going to be many who say on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and do all these things in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you evildoers, because I never knew you. So there can be people who think they're in, but they're actually out. And the scary thing is, is that there is judgment outside the door. Weeping and gnashing of teeth communicates judgment and pain and misery. It is often used of the eternal fires of hell. It is a punishment that is reserved for unbelievers. And Jesus is telling Israelites that. Supposedly righteous, holy Israelites. There's judgment outside the door. And some of you will be on the outside looking in. Jesus is teaching the people, you're not entitled to a seat at the table. You're not entitled to a seat at the table. Not everyone will make it through the door. These Israelites thought they were entitled to a seat at the table in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets. But Jesus is telling them there's no seat at the table without coming through the narrow door. And what's the narrow door? It's Christ. To to apply what Jesus is teaching to our situation, to our time, there is no seat at the table reserved for you because your parents were Christians. There's no seat reserved at the table for you because you were baptized. There's no seat at, at the table reserved for you because you were dedicated as a child. There's no seat at the table reserved for you because you're a good person, have never killed anyone or cheated on your spouse. There's not a seat at the table reserved for you because your name is on the roll of a church membership book somewhere. There are going to be Israelites on the outside looking in. They were the chosen people of God. God made a covenant with them, and Jesus walked their roads and visited their villages, and Jesus, they saw Jesus up close and personal but they would be on the outside of the door where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's going to be blessing inside the door. And the people who are going to be blessed and saved inside the door are people that the Pharisees of that time could not have imagined. Because Jesus says in verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. North and south and east and west. In other words, this is shocking what Jesus is saying. Some of you Israelites who think you're in, you're going to be out. But Gentiles who are going to be coming from all over the world, north and south and east and west, they're going to be in. Sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not a matter of who you can trace your physical lineage to. It's a matter of who you can trace your spiritual lineage to by faith in Christ. And he says in verse 30, indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. And and really the point of this saying is that there will be some who are going to be out. Some that you didn't expect are going to be in, like the last, they're going to be first, they're going to be in. 
but you who think you're in, you're going to be out. It's the opposite. The Gentiles were thought to be the last, to be unworthy, but they will have a place in the kingdom. Instead of Israelites sitting down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's going to be Gentiles sitting down with them at the table of fellowship in the kingdom. This passage is amazingly prophetic. It's amazingly prophetic because at the time that Jesus spoke this, a Jew could not imagine a Gentile sitting down at the same table and eating with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you think of a more shocking scene for a kosher Jew than to say there are going to be people from north, south, east, and west, Gentiles, sitting down at the same table and eating with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God? But we know from Acts 10 and 11 that those barriers did come down. God comes to Peter and says, now sit down with Gentiles and eat whatever's put in front of you. Why? Because Gentiles are now welcome in the people of God. The expanding church would include peoples from all nations and races, and Jews and Gentiles did sit down at the same tables. The New Testament church is about Jews and Gentiles sitting down at the same table, if you will, and partaking of the bread and the cup and eating together as one. Gentiles in the kingdom of God, but some Jews out because they did not walk through the door of Christ. So there's blessing. There is salvation inside the door. Those who do walk through the door of Christ will find blessing and salvation. They will enjoy the fellowship of Christ and of all the redeemed from all ages. But tragically, the implication of Luke 13, 9 is coming to pass. Luke 13, 9 is the parable of the fig tree where Jesus says, if there is fruit, then fine. But if there is not fruit, then cut it down. And the words, the way it was constructed implies that it is likely that there will not be fruit on the tree when he comes back to look. The way that Jesus phrased that condition showed the likely outcome. And the likely outcome was that Israel as a nation probably would not bear fruit and it would be rejected and cut down. And that's now basically what Jesus says about Jerusalem in verses 31 to 35. He's not seeing any fruit on the fig tree. Time is running short and the door is soon going to be closed. Verse 31, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place. Go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, don't take this as the Pharisees are all of a sudden looking out for Jesus. That's not what this is. This is the Pharisees wanting to get rid of Jesus. This is the Pharisees wanting to get rid of Jesus' influence. And if that can be accomplished by him going to Jerusalem and being killed by Herod, so be it. But if it can be accomplished by forcing him to seclude himself and go into exile to keep himself from being killed, then that's fine too. The advice that they're giving him here is, is basically go hide, get out of here and go seclude yourself somewhere. They wanted to get rid of him. But Jesus didn't listen to their advice. In verse 32, he says, go tell that fox, I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now, we might be tempted to think that there is a kind of a, a, a symbol there or a prefigurement of the resurrection when Jesus mentions the first day, the second day, the third day. 
that's a possibility, but I think a more likely possibility is Jesus is revealing the shortness of the time. I'm working today and tomorrow, but very, very soon, in fact, the day after tomorrow, figuratively speaking, the time's going to be up. And I'm going to be accomplishing, finishing the mission that God gave me to do. And he doesn't have good words to say about Jerusalem in verse 33, because in kind of an ironic, kind of a backhanded way, he says, surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And he's going back and looking at the history of all the prophets in the Old Testament and how the Israelites mistreated all of the prophets, true prophets of God like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and all these prophets came, Elijah and Elisha. And you know what all of these apostate kings and apostate people did? They rejected them. They tried to hunt them down and kill them. They, they tortured them. They put them in prison. And Jesus is saying, my lot is going to be the same. I'm going to go to Jerusalem just like all the prophets before me. And surely I'm going to be put to death just like all the true prophets before me. But Jesus does not shy away from that death. That's why he's going to Jerusalem anyway. His mission is clear. He will continue to do what he has been tasked to accomplish. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And then in verses 34 and 35, we see Jesus mourn over Jerusalem and its spiritual condition. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. He uses a very tender image, a motherly image of a hen gathering together her little chicks and providing protection, providing provision, watching over them. And, and Jesus is basically saying, I, ha- I am the Messiah. God sent me to welcome you, to bring you under the wings of my salvation, but you are rejecting me. They're hard-hearted, aren't they? The Pharisees are hard-hearted. Herod is hard-hearted. The religious leaders, the scribes, the synagogue leaders, they're hard-hearted and they're not willing to accept who Jesus is, their Messiah, their Savior. And we know from the scriptures that that hard-heartedness can be sent by God as a judgment on them. They killed all these prophets before and now God has sent them hardness of heart that they're not gonna see who Jesus is, and they too are going to experience the judgment that they deserve. And we also know from the New Testament that that hardness of heart by the Israelites also in turn produced an opportunity for salvation for the Gentiles, didn't it? Which in this passage, Jesus has alluded to. The Israelites are going to be hard-hearted and they're going to reject me, but there's going to be people coming from the north, south, east, and west coming into the kingdom of God. Your hard-heartedness, Paul says in Romans, leads to the mercy going to the Gentiles. But Jesus mourns, he laments over Jerusalem's hard-hearted condition. And he says in verse 35, look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when Jesus says in verse 35, your house is left to you desolate, he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem. Not 40 years after Jesus 
ascends to heaven, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Romans and destroyed. The temple that stood in Jesus' day, that temple has not stood in Jerusalem since AD 70, since 40 years after Jesus' time. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem. He predicted the the desolation of Jerusalem, the trampling on of Jerusalem by the Gentiles. And why? Because they rejected their Messiah. He was right in front of them and they rejected him. He says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some are going to say that when he rides in on a donkey and his triumphal entry. But I think this may be even pointing to way off in the future, a second coming when Jesus comes in his triumphal coming and all who see him will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One of the things that is incredibly tragic about this passage is how close those people were to blessing and salvation. And yet, they missed it. The greatest tragedy is to be so close to blessing and yet face the judgment of God. Jesus was literally inches, feet away from them. The Savior of the world, their Messiah, the one that the prophets predicted for hundreds of years would come. But the problem was they killed those prophets. And when Jesus came, they rejected him too. So close to blessing, and yet they missed it and will face the judgment of God. They were so close and yet so far. There is only one way to a seat at the table. There is no entitlement. There's no entitlement. You're not entitled to anything. No one is entitled to the kingdom of God. It is only by grace that anyone enters the kingdom of God. No one's entitled to anything. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve God's condemnation. No one's entitled to the kingdom of God. The only way that anyone enters the kingdom is by grace. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. How does that happen? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's only by grace that anyone enters the kingdom of God. And everyone who does enter, there's only one door. It's Jesus. He's the one and only way to God. Our culture is not going to like to hear that message. You're going to be rejected if you share that message. But that's okay because you're in good company. Because Jesus was rejected, wasn't he? Paul and Peter and John and James, they were often rejected. The prophets that came before Jesus, they were often rejected. We're not accountable for that rejection, but we are accountable for how faithfully we share this message of good news that has been entrusted to us. And so there's only one way. Have you walked through that door? Have you gone through that narrow door that is Christ? I pray that you have. And if so, may we lead others that way so that they may find it as well. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, 
we thank you for the word of Christ. His words today are challenging. They challenge us and they warn us of the danger of assuming where we stand with regard to eternal life. I'm afraid, Father, that there are many, many people in churches, maybe even some here today, many people in churches who think that they're in. They belong, they're guaranteed a seat at the table in in heaven in the kingdom of God, but they'll be on the outside because they never truly walk through the door of Christ in spirit-wrought faith and repentance. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today in that condition, that, Lord, you would open their eyes, remove the scales of, of blindness from their eyes, that they may see their need of Christ. Draw them to yourself, Father, and, and give them new birth from above. Lead them through that narrow door to blessing and salvation. Father, give us grace and confidence and boldness to share this message of good news with the world. Some will see it as exclusive, as narrow-minded, but Lord, help us to see it for the truth that it is, that it is amazingly good news. That the God of the universe has sent his son to save us. And if we will come to him, we will be saved. Lord, may we share that good news with the world. And may you be pleased to open eyes and lead people in. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.